I want to first uh, just say thank you, church, and thank you, elders, for giving me this opportunity to speak from God's word this morning. Um, it's a great privilege, and yeah, it's a great opportunity. So um, thinking about this morning's text, I was reminded when I was in junior high, I remember being really excited to watch Shark Week. If anyone remembers Shark Week, it's the one time in the year where you flip over to the Discovery Channel and, um, and you just watch a week about what we know about sharks, all the cool things about sharks, and as a junior high guy, yeah, sharks. So during Shark Week, there was this documentary. It was on the greatest shark attack in history, and it was on the survivors of this sinking ship, the USS Indianapolis. So July 30th, 1945, during World War II, um, the ship sank after being hit by enemy torpedoes, and their survivors were stranded in the middle of the ocean, forgotten for four days. The the documentary was about them being attacked by sharks, but the majority of them did not die from shark attacks. Big letdown of the documentary, but the majority of them died from thirst, from dehydration, from salt poisoning. Poisoning. They were drinking the salt water. So imagine, you're stranded in the middle of the ocean. It's been three or four days, and you're so thirsty. The, hot, the sun is beating on you, and you've been told, don't drink the water. It's just going to make it worse. But you're so thirsty, and you just convince yourself, if I just drink a little bit, it'll, it'll satisfy my thirst. But it doesn't. It never does. It never will. It'll just leave you thirstier than before. And this is a picture of how we sin. We look for satisfaction in the created things when we were created for satisfaction in the creator. We look for satisfaction in our identity, in our relationships, in sex, in material things. We look for satisfaction in praise from others, in how many likes we get on social media, this desire to be attractive to other people. We look for satisfaction in always being in control, in this sense of security. And the list goes on and on, right? We look for satisfaction in these things. We feel a sense of satisfaction for a moment. The high fades away, and we just find ourselves thirstier than before. And the cycle continues. It's, it's like as Steve Hope says, we're, we're sipping on salt water. In, in Jeremiah 2.13, God says, For my people have committed two evils, They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, living water is running water. It's not stagnant. Water that is living, that is running, it's the best water, the cleanest water that you can drink from. If anyone's been on a backpacking trip, you know you're, you got your water filter and you're going to filter out water from a stream. You're going to filter out water that's moving by, that's living You're not going to go to the corner where it's pooling and stagnant and bacteria is building. And so God calls himself the fountain of living water. And God says that we've abandoned him as the fountain of living water for cistern water. Cistern water is stagnant water. It's dirty water sitting in a dirty hole in the ground with bugs flying around it. You can just imagine that picture. You see, that's what we gone for rejecting the living water. Before the fall, Adam and Eve, they were walking with God. They had perfect fellowship with the fountain of living water. They had all the joy, love, and peace, and communion, and satisfaction that that they can have walking with God. 
but they believe the lie, as do we all, that there is something outside of God that God's not giving us, that he's holding from us. There's some sort of satisfaction outside of him. And so they disobeyed him, trusting in other means for life. You see, our hearts are a dry cavern made to be overflowed with the living water, but we've rejected the living water for cistern water. And now we find ourselves in the bottom of a cistern, saltwater ocean, spiritually dead, with our hearts bent towards drinking down this water called sin. We need new hearts bent toward the living water. We need rescuing. We need a savior. And the savior comes, and in John chapter 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Drinking is believing. And Jesus has come. He's declared that he is the true satisfaction your soul is made for. And so this morning, God wants to know where you're sitting right now from his word that Jesus has come to satisfy your soul's hunger and thirst. If you're here this morning, you're just thirsty. You're just thirsty for water that gives life. Or you're here this morning and you're just drinking salt water just and never find yourself satisfied. Or if you're here this morning, you are drinking the living water, but you just find yourself going back and sipping on salt water. John chapter 4 is for you. It's for all of us. And so my big idea this morning is that Jesus offers living water to all who come and thirst for him. The Gospel of John is, was written by the Apostle John. He was one of the original 12 disciples, and he was within Jesus' inner circle of disciples. And John's original audience was consisted of Jews and Gentiles, and he wrote the Gospel with an evangelistic bend for them to hear the Gospel, the good news. And John's purpose in his Gospel is found in chapter 20, verse 31. This is his thesis. This is his thesis for what he's written. It says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Every account in this gospel, every encounter Jesus has, John is making this verse the argument. He is pointing us to who Jesus is, and by believing in him, we can have life. We see in John 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He's basically telling Nicodemus, you're dead and you need new life. And then he tells Nicodemus that, that how to get this, that get new life is that just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole by Moses in the book of Numbers, so must the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross that whoever looks at him, believes in him, can have life. This is why Jesus has come into the world. We are dead, Jesus came as life, and in him we can have life. And so we, here we are, we're in our text in chapter 4. Jesus has been going back and forth between Galilee and Judea. He's been performing signs, and he's been making bold statements about himself. He's in the Judean countryside with his disciples. His disciples are baptizing for him, and he decides to go back to Galilee. And I love what verse 4 says. It says that he had to go through Samaria. This is where they're at. They're going to Galilee, and he says he had to go through Samaria. Now, 
He didn't have to go through Samaria, geographically speaking. He could have went around Samaria, taken the longer route, um, and gone around them. And in fact, that's what the Jews did. They would take the longer route around Samaria to avoid the Samaritans. Jews despised Samaritans. Samaritans were Jewish half-breeds. They were Jews who intermingled with foreigners after Assyria took over northern Israel. And not only were they intermingled with foreigners, but they also intermingled their worship of God with other pagan religions. They only considered the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, as scripture, and they made their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is a big deal. And this comes into play later in our text. Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. They despised them. It says that they had no dealings with them. And so when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, he didn't mean geographically, but providentially. Jesus had a providential appointment to make. With who? With the Samaritan woman. So my first point is that Jesus alone satisfies our thirst. So Jesus' disciples go off into town to buy some food. They're in Samaria, and Jesus is sitting by Jacob's well. He's taking a break, he's tired, and he's waiting. It's about the sixth hour or so, about noon. Verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now there's something wrong here. This woman is coming to draw water at the wrong time of the day. Back then and still today, women would get up early to avoid the heat of the day and they would go together to, a, to the well as a communal activity to be together. We see this woman coming to the water at the hottest part of the day. There's something going on that she is making it a point to avoid the other women coming to the well. We eventually learn that she has had five husbands and the man she is living with now is not her husband. She... She is likely avoiding the other women because they talk, they gossip, and she doesn't want to hear it. She's got this thing going on in her heart where if people find out about it, they're not going to look at me the same. And so it's festering inside of her, it's eating at her, and she's changing her whole lifestyle. She's got to go out in the well in the middle of the day by herself. And here's this woman, she's coming to the well, she's desperate for spiritual water, she doesn't know she needs, and she meets the fountain that she desperately needs. And so it's just her and Jesus at the well, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now Jesus just crossed some big boundaries here. Two things. One, it was seen as a big no-no for Jewish rabbis to talk with women of of deep spiritual, theological things, and especially of of ill repute. And then two, um, Jews saw Samaritans as ceremonially unclean. And so when Jesus asks her for a drink, he would be drinking out of her bucket. He would be drinking the water she touched. And so Jesus here, he breaks down the walls of sexism and of racism, and he's pursuing her heart. This woman understands all the cultural boundaries he just crossed, and he questions him. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus, he's guiding the conversation. He answers her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, if you knew who it was was talking to you, you would have asked me for water. I would have given you living water. 
This living water that Jesus is talking about is spiritual. This living water is the Holy Spirit, talked about in John chapter 7 and, and in, in Jeremiah 2 and elsewhere. This, this living water is a gift from God and it, sas- and it satisfies the soul. But the woman doesn't understand. She's thinking physical water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's asking him, this is Jacob's well, and you got something better than this? You don't even have a bucket, and you got living water. Where do you get this water at? She thinks it's physical. Jesus says it's spiritual. And Jesus is the next verse. He's pressing in at her heart. This is important. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Jesus is showing her that, yes, if you go to this well and you drink from it, you're going to be thirsty again. You've got to go back. But I think he's speaking to her heart on a deeper spiritual level that everyone who drinks of anything other than the fount of living water will never be satisfied. They must keep coming back because their hearts are still thirsty. This woman tries to, feel, to fill her spiritual thirst with men. She's had five husbands and she's living with her boyfriend now. The beginning and end of every relationship, she was, her heart was thirsty. And after every man, she's drinking down salt water. She's becoming more and more thirsty, and her heart's becoming more and more numb to the romance. It's eating away at her. It's all she goes to, and she cannot get out. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. What water are you going to that's leaving you thirsty? You see, from, apart from Jesus, apart from Christ, we are all like this woman. We have all looked to quench our thirst with something else. But we continue to come back again, thirstier than before. C.S. Lewis says this. He calls it an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Have you felt that? An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Everyone who has looked at pornography has felt that. Each look at the screen produces more cravings and less pleasure. Everyone who's been addicted to a substance has felt that. It takes more to get high, and the high gets shorter. Everyone who has been in a codependent relationship has felt that. As the relationship gets, breaks down, the feeling of needing the other person gets stronger. Everyone who's proud has felt that. We need more and more applause, even as it matters less and less. Everyone who's self-righteous has felt that. We, need, we make more rules and we find less joy. What water are you going to that's leaving you thirstier when you walk away, that you keep coming back to? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And here, Jesus, he's offering her something better. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, become, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's good news. There, there's three truths that, to this living water that Jesus offers that, that I notice at least. One, it is given. It's not earned. It is not based on works or self-righteousness to have this all-satisfying water. 
This free gift does not show partiality. It's freely offered. You don't need any special credentials for this water. And if it's freely offered to someone like the Samaritan woman, it's freely offered to anybody, including you and including me. And, and one thing is, do you know anybody like this woman, five husbands, or something on that level that we perceive? Do you despair of them? Don't. He didn't. He's making her a worshiper. Two. You never will thirst again. Drinking this fountain, your soul will be completely satisfied. But this isn't a fountain where you drink one time and you go off about your business. That's not who he means. How many times people say they come to Jesus just once and they go off to other fountains? This fountain is meant to stay at, to live at. Your thirst is completely satisfied in him. You're no longer dominated by the desires of the flesh, but you have new life in the spirit, marked by his fruit. Imagine, the cavern of your heart overflowed with the living water, the spirit, and it's just overflowing with his fruit. Love, joy, peace. That's what you experience daily as a Christian with the living water. And you're experiencing kindness and selflessness and unwavering faith in God. And that's not in and of ourselves. It's the spirit dwelt in us who's overflowing out of us. That's what it means to have this living water. And those other sources of water that's cistern water, that's enticing to you, they're going to be, look, you're going to see them more and more for what they really are and less enticing. Three, it becomes a spring in you, welling up into eternal life. Receiving this living water is a blessing that is in abundance. It's more than you can ever want. It's more than you can ever think you need. It wells up to eternal life. You're saved from the bondage and the bitterness of sin and death. And you have eternity with the one who is your true satisfaction. And maybe you're here this morning and you're just frustrated. You're frustrated because nothing just seems to satisfy And you move from one fountain to the next and you're drinking salt water and it just keeps letting you down. And you're thirstier than before. You tell yourself, this isn't working for me. I gotta pack up. I gotta move on to the next thing. And here's the thing. Your your soul is not made for that. Your soul. your, Your soul. Our souls. We're made for deep, deep satisfaction in Jesus. In him, there's no, in him there is deep contentment. No matter what circumstances are coming our way, we're, at, we're under the waterfall. We're at the fountain. We're living there. In Christ, you're not moving in, from, in frustration, going, this isn't working for me. I've got to move on to this, to that, to the next thing. But faith in Christ is a solid rock to stand on. Now, what I'm not saying is that if, you're a Christian and, and you have longings for the things in, the, in this life. You're not satisfied in Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. If you're single, and it's a good thing to long for a godly spouse and glorify God in that way, and you can be satisfied in Jesus. Or if you're a spouse, you can long for children while satisfied in Jesus. The difference here is that there's a moving frustration, 
moving from one thing to the next because you're not finding satisfaction that your heart is deeply longing for, made in the image of God, whereas in Jesus, there is a deep contentment. And you can long for good, godly things, but there's a deep contentment. And whatever happens, whatever trials come your way, whatever circumstances, you're truly satisfied and nothing's going to waver you. You're, at the, you're staying, you're living at the fountain. And so if you're a Christian and you're content in the living water, but you find yourself wandering off, you're prone to wander, you're wandering off to other fountains, and you're giving into this lie that there's something you're missing out on apart from God, I encourage you, call on him freshly to remind you that there's no sin that offers you any good. Remind yourself daily that Jesus is always enough. He's always enough. Every, when you come to Jesus, he's going to be enough. He's not going to let you down. Meditate on Psalm 63, our call to worship text this morning. That his love is better than life itself. That everything this world has to offer, his love is better than life. Verse 15, the woman responds. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to come here to draw water or be thirsty. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, great, she's asking for living water. Hook it up, Jesus. She sounds genuine. She's good. But it doesn't happen like that. The woman is still thinking it's physical water. She wants this water so that she doesn't have to come to the well in the middle of the day anymore. She's been doing a good job avoiding the other women and If she doesn't have to go to the well anymore, it's going to make her current routine easier. Jesus, coming to Jesus isn't going to make our current routine easier. She wants this water without dealing with what is making her desperately thirsty. She doesn't want to go deep. She wants to keep it surface. She wants a solution without having to deal with the problem. If If you're not a Christian here this morning... And you're here this morning and you're seeking some sort of satisfaction, just some sort of stability or just some solution in life. I want you to know that Jesus is offering himself as living water to you whom your soul is made to be satisfied in. But I want you to know that he wants all of you. Not just your Sunday best. That's not how this works. But he wants all of you. He wants you to come to him in your brokenness. He wants every secret, hidden part of your life. He doesn't just want the surface. He wants to change you from the inside out. So this is my second point. Bring to Jesus what is keeping the water from coming in. Verse 16, Jesus is pressing in. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. You may, you may be wondering, whoa, Jesus, why you got to come at her like that? Why so harsh with her all of a sudden? This is sensitive. Why are you coming at her at this angle? The problem with living water, not getting in, is that sin is held on to. 
either because we like it too much to get rid of, or we won't bring it to the light for fear of shame. It's like a wound you want to cover up, and you don't want anyone to touch because it's going to hurt. You don't want to deal with it because it's going to be painful. There is in this woman a cavernous void of longing that she thinks only men can meet. No woman or man thinks that they, no woman or man goes through six sexual relationships without starting desperately thirsty or ending desperately thirsty. She can't find it in the man she's with, and so she moves on to the next. Or, or they can't find what they want in her, and so they kick her to the curb. Either way, she's left wounded with a numbness and a deadness in her heart that is hard to the living water coming in. It's too painful. She doesn't want to go there. She doesn't want to open up her heart. And Jesus knows this about her. He knows everything about her. He knows every secret and hidden part of her heart. And he knows that she's had five husbands and that she's living with her boyfriend now. But listen, he's not bringing this up to shame her. He's not bringing this up to get some sort of closure. He already knows everything about her. Because he doesn't go back to the adultery when she's moving on to the topic of worship. He goes with her. Listen, he is bringing this up in love to expose her of the deep thirst she doesn't know she has and to expose the deadly sin that is killing her. He's moving inside to expose a raw nerve. He's forcing her to deal with the secret places where the living water couldn't go in yet. Jesus will not stay on the outside. He will not have externalism. That's what he will do with you. He will do with us. He will push in until he touches every single raw nerve and every single dark part of our heart. He will push through our fakery, our hypocrisy, our facade that we put up so that our hard heart can break and the living water can get in. Listen, the one person in the universe who knows you completely, he has a love that is relentless, that is pursuing, that's surgical for you so much that it demands the darkness of your heart to be dealt with. For you to come into the light. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. There is life coming into the light. In love he wants all of you. He exposes her spiritual thirst. And he is setting the cost for her to follow him. He's wanting grace to break in. And he tells her go get your husband and come here. He's saying, you want to receive this living water in faith? This is what it looks like. Go get what is keeping you from Jesus and bring it to him. Don't come to Jesus and keep your secret things hidden. That's not coming to Jesus. To come to the light means to bring all of you to the light. So what is it? What is it that that Jesus is telling you to bring to him? He knows everything about you, yet he is pursuing your worship. Even he's pursuing you in all of your stupidity and your limp and your brokenness. He wants it. He wants to make you a worshiper if you're here this morning and you're not not a believer. He doesn't want us to just come to him 
white-knuckling righteousness and trying to be a good person. That's not how it works. He wants all of you. And this is the tragedy. This is how she replies. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, since you just told me everything about myself. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, plural Jews, say that in Jerusalem is where people ought to worship. Now, when I first read that, I thought, where in the world did that come from? Like, where did the subject change? An animal can chew off their own leg to get out of a trap, or a fish will rip off their lip to get off a hook. And so will this woman who will mangle a conversation to try to get out of talking about her sin. As long as basically saying, I have living water for you. Go get your husband and come here. As long as we're talking about my adultery, where do you think we should worship? That's what just happened. John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Do we see that in this text or what? She's dodging Jesus' pursuit of her. It's another surface question. She can't go deep. And this isn't clever, but it works for now. Jesus, this is interesting, he doesn't go back to the adultery. He goes with her on the topic of worship. Listen to this. He goes with her on the topic of worship, but he does not embrace her question. Learn from him here. This is amazing. Jesus tells her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. She's dodging him, and he, has, he says, you want to talk about worship? Let's get to the true issue here. Let's get back to your heart again. Let's go inside again. Your issue is not where you worship, but who you worship, and if your heart is truly worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so that's my third point, is true worshipers come to the cross in spirit and truth. And so why is this woman bringing up worship on mountains? The, the woman's trying to dodge her issue by bringing up this long-debated topic about where worship ought to be. She expects him as a Jew to give an answer defending Jerusalem. We got we to gotta worship at Jerusalem. And then her, as a Samaritan, would make a, ref, a refutation. She's going to argue for Mount Gerizim. And they're going to argue for a little bit, and then they're going to forget all about her adultery and move on. But she doesn't expect what he says next. He rejects the whole argument. He tells her the hour is here where there, that doesn't matter anymore. And it's remarkable for Jesus to say as a Jew that Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, the city where the temple of God is, is now fading out to be an important piece of worshiping God. It's becoming irrelevant now. It's a remarkable statement. But instead what he says what matters now is who we worship and how we worship. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now Jesus is not saying 
only us Jews know God, and if you're not a Jew, you don't know God. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he tells the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in John 8, 19, you neither know me nor my father. This is what he, if you knew me, you would know my father also. He's telling that to the Jewish leaders. They're worshiping every week God and they don't know him because they don't know the son. What he does mean, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know, salvation is from the Jews. What he does mean is God has revealed himself through the Jews, through the line of David, and salvation, Jesus, has come from the Jews, but it's not for the Jews only now. He's telling her that she can worship the Father. What is, but what is being bluntly clear here is to rightly know God the Father, we must rightly know who the Son is. John spends his entire gospel making this point of who is Jesus. He's making this argument at who is Jesus. In chapter 1, he is the word who was with God, who was God. He was in the beginning. He created all things. He was the one in chapter 12 whose glory Isaiah saw. He's the one in chapter 8 who said, before Abraham was, I am. And he's echoing back to when God tells Moses, His name, I am who I am. To rightly worship God the Father, we must rightly know who the Son is. Then he says we must worship in spirit and truth. To worship in spirit begins with new birth in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh, spiritually dead. And that which is born of spirit is spirit, spiritually alive, living, We need new birth, and from that flows true worship. Not just going through the motions. God is not speaking, he's not seeking spiritually dead religious practices. He is not seeking you to go through the motions of coming to church every Sunday. He is seeking what Paul describes in Romans 12, dying to yourself daily as a living sacrifice, and not conforming to the patterns of this world, but renewing your mind, and you're discerning what the will of God is. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's what it means to worship in spirit, in new birth, and to truly know and love God from the heart, not just surface externalism. And he says we must worship in truth. To worship in truth is to worship the true and living God as revealed through the scriptures, through the Son, and to worship God through God the Son who is the way, the truth, the life. To worship God in truth, we, mu- we must worship through the Son who is the way, the truth, the life. And notice one last thing. Notice it says there is an hour that is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father. What is this hour? John continually writes in, about this hour in his gospel. This hour is when Jesus comes into the world. And more specifically, this hour is when Jesus is betrayed. He's falsely accused. He takes on the cross. He takes on sin and our punishment that we deserve. And he suffers and dies. That's this hour that Jesus is talking about. So we don't go to this mountain or that mountain. We don't go to Jerusalem, but we come to the cross. We come to the cross in our brokenness, 
and we lay down our sin, we nail it to the cross, and that is where our sins are paid for. That's where our sins are washed away. It says, Colossians 2 says, when we come to the cross, our debts are canceled that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. Jesus says, go get your husband. Go get what, is, what sin is burdening you and bring it to the cross. It's nailed there on the cross with Christ. Your sin, your burden, he took on. And he rose from the dead to prove that he's victorious over that sin and death. The woman responds to him. And at this point, I would love to hear the tone of her voice. It's just, it's prob- I hope it's softening at this point. It's not dodging. It's not running away. Verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Man, how crazy would that be? And he's speaking that to us this morning. It doesn't get any clearer than that. He is the living water that you were made to drink and find satisfaction in. He's the one who knows everything about you, yet is pursuing you to be a worshiper. And he is the Messiah who came into the world and died for sinners to make worship possible for you. Do you you believe in this? Do you trust this? Let's pray.